Ladies and gentlemen, distinguished guests, a warm welcome to every one of you who's made your way here to our new Sheikh Zaid Theater in LSE's new academic building. And for those of you also on video link, my name is Danny Kwa. I'm Professor of Economics here at the LSE and head of the LSE's Economics Department. It's my pleasure this evening to chair the lecture on China and financial reform and in a few minutes to introduce our speaker, Sir Howard Davis, director of the LSE. Before we begin with that, if I may be allowed a few words, there aren't very many things in economics that occur in the time span of hours or days, and yet at the same time have sufficient traction and magnitude in people's lives that those quantities are actually observable from outer space. The current global financial crisis is one such event, and it is an exciting and a harrowing time for us all. World GDP now runs about 50 trillion US dollars a year, with the US economy accounting for about a third of that, the UK and the Euro area together another one quarter. In these parts of the world, financial institutions with trillions of dollars of assets to their name, and whose names themselves were gold-plated bastions of risk and enormous private return, have overnight vanished to prevent yet others following with potentially disastrous consequences for the real economy. Governments here and elsewhere, accounting for over half the world's GDP, have set aside trillions of dollars of resources to shore up or purchase outright those ailing financial institutions and in the inevitable medical analogy, their toxic assets. Everyone now agrees that the financial system should be better regulated or should have been better regulated, even if before this year, everyone was also happily and not so quietly enjoying the fruits of that financial boom. Financial reform is now on the cards, whether by early design or by urgent necessity. There's only one other seismic outer space observable event worth anything these days. And that is how China, over the last quarter century, has brought out of extreme poverty more than double the population of the United States. Indeed, China has single-handedly lifted more people out of extreme poverty than the world as a whole has succeeded in doing. China is one of the world's only two billion people economies, and it has gotten to this remarkable singular achievement through the sheer force of economic growth in the face of rising domestic inequality and growing international suspicion over its currency management, its trade practices, its political control and engagement, its patterns of sovereign wealth investment, and its environmental impact. Now, as with most large global events in an already crowded world, these two large forces I have described, global financial markets and East Asian growth and development, will collide and interact and engage. In some people's minds, they already have, not just now again, but even as long as a decade ago during the 1997 Asian financial crisis. 
I'm very proud to say that LSE's director, Sir Howard Davis, stands right at the intersection point of these two seismic outer space discernible economic events. Before he became director here at the LSE, Howard was deputy governor of the Bank of England and then founding chairman of the Financial Services Authority, a single regulatory entity for the UK created under his leadership from nine different disparate agencies. For years now, Howard has been on the International Advisory Councils of China's Banking and Securities Regulatory Commissions. The lecture this evening is the fourth of an annual series that he is delivering on China's financial reforms and their impact on the rest of the world. I can think of no one better qualified to guide us at this critical time through thinking on this convergence of and collision between the largest economic forces on this planet. Howard. Thank you very much, Danny. Though um, I think you haven't picked up the latest version of my CV because I have decided it's now prudent to expunge all reference to the Bank of England and the Financial Services Authority. Um, <laughs> from my resume, um, so uh, please uh, note that uh, in the future. Um, I used to work for the Foreign Office and McKinsey. That's kind of safe just at the moment, at least until McKinsey goes bust like everybody else. Um, the big news of today, for those of us who care more about literature than anything else, was of course the Booker Prize winner, uh, a book called White Tiger by Aravinda Viga. Has anybody actually read it? Apart from me? Well, there you are. It was only announced uh, at midnight last night, so you'd have had to be very enthusiastic. Um, but at least one person here is going to read it um, before the next week is out, because Danny will, uh, if I tell him uh, <laughs> that his pay depends on it. But the reason I mention it is because, although the publicity for it didn't actually make this clear, it is, in fact, a letter or a series of letters, that is the form of the book, addressed to Wen Jiabao uh, from this Indian in Bangalore who notes that Wen Jiabao has come to visit Bangalore and has made a speech about uh, the Chinese economy and the Indian economy. And the format of this novel is to say to Wen Jiabao, look, you talk about Chinese economy and the Indian economy as if you know something about it. Let me tell you how it is from the perspective of an ordinary Indian coming up from a lower caste and ending up uh, a successful uh, entrepreneur and murderer, but that's kind of uh, inside, um, in India. And it's absolutely riveting book, which probably ought to be a set text uh, in the economics department. Anyway, in a sense, in a sense, the reason I mentioned this, this point, um, and the reason I'm kind of interested, because I was the chair of the Booker Prize judges last year, and so I take an interest in what my successor chose this year, um, is that in a sense, these essays, these lectures that I'm giving on China financial reform are sort of letters to Wen Jiabao um, about China's financial reform from an interested um, and generally sympathetic uh, observer. Uh, as Danny said, I've been doing this for uh, four years now, um, and I've been doing it 
informed by the perspective I gained from being an advisor to both the CBRC and the CSRC, and I'm proud to be associated with those two under Chairman uh, Liu Ming Kang, who uh, has only one fault, in my view, is that he was educated at City University rather than at the LSE, <laughs> uh, but otherwise is a splendid man, and uh, Chairman Shang Fulin, uh, the chairman of the CSRC, who came to speak here last year, and whose daughter is in fact at Durham rather than at the LSE. But these are minor points. Um, and, but of course I should say right at the start that nothing I say in any sense commits the CBRC uh, or the CSRC, and sometimes in what I say that will become pretty obvious. I was last in China in uh, June, so that's in a sense an age ago uh, in terms of Western financial markets, but perhaps not too long in terms of Chinese financial markets, and I shall be going back there on Sunday. So my aim really tonight is to review what's been happening uh, more recently uh, in China, and I suppose, although I should emphasize that this is not primarily a lecture about the financial crisis, inevitably it makes sense to talk about what impacts that financial crisis may have on the Chinese reform program at the end because it seems quite unlikely that the Chinese will completely escape the consequences of what's going on in the European and North American economies. Indeed, some people think that the consequences in China could be quite unpleasant, but let me leave that for later. My thesis really tonight is that the reform program has gone reasonably well so far in the banking sector, not so well in the securities markets and especially the bond market, where reform is harder, but it has created some damaging distortions in the financial system in China, and China now faces some quite difficult choices about whether it wishes to unwind those distortions which are having quite serious macroeconomic consequences. They therefore face some hard decisions in the short term, not the same as those governments are facing here, but equally tough. But to illuminate that general conclusion, first let's look at what's been happening in the Chinese financial sector in recent years. Now my first point is that the Chinese financial system is in some senses quite sophisticated by the standards of developing countries. This slide uses the McKinsey developed concept of financial depth, which is essentially the sum of bank deposits and other financial assets like equities and bonds as a percentage of GDP and the figures show both the absolute percentages uh, and indeed the compound annual growth rate. And what you can see from this uh, is that China is in fact relatively sophisticated in terms of financial depth. These are the figures along here and China has financial assets on this measure of 307% of GDP, obviously not as high as the UK, which is 422, but the growth rate has been 25% in China versus 9% in the UK. And if we look at India, it's only two-thirds of the Chinese figure, 200%, approximately, Russia only uh, 160%. Russia growing now more rapidly in financial terms, but India not. And these are quite interesting uh, figures because they show that China already has quite a deep 
financial sector. The other point which is obvious from this slide is that the dark bar at the bottom is the percentage which is in the banking sector. And as you can see, China is very high in terms of the percentage of bank deposits in the overall size of its financial system. If we look at global comparisons, this shows GDP per head uh, on the bottom axis and the percentage of financial assets, the percentage of GDP on this axis. And you can see that China is in really relatively unusual position. You can pretty much draw a line uh, through this um, that the financial debt increases with GDP per head, uh, but of course there are variations around it. And China is really very high. South Africa, similarly, which is obviously the South African economy was rather peculiar with one very sophisticated part of the financial sector uh, and a population uh, which was somewhat unrelated to that in the past. And so China is quite unusual in terms of the size of its financial sector in relation to its GDP per head. Now these figures float around a bit, of course, um, as the value of equities changes, but this is uh, directionally correct. Incidentally, uh, we've assumed for quite a long time now, for several decades, uh, that financial deepening was a one-way ticket. If you look globally, you find that in 1980, financial assets were approximately 100% of global GDP. Whereas by 2006, financial assets were 350% of global GDP. Um, and even 20 years ago, there were only about 30 countries with financial assets whose value exceeded their GDP. By 2006, there were over 60 countries with financial assets larger than GDP. One thing I think that is quite likely as a result of this financial crisis, at least temporarily, but possibly for quite a long period, is that this trend towards further deepening in this sense of financial assets in relation to GDP slows down or conceivably reverses. There is a significant deleveraging going on in the financial sector, certainly in the investment banks and some of the commercial banks. Uh, and I think it's quite likely that in the UK and in the US that this ratio of financial assets to GDP falls uh, in the next couple of years and that 420% may prove to be a high point. That's actually quite an interesting question to uh, think about. It is not primarily my subject uh, tonight as to what is reasonable uh, because it does seem that probably we got to a point where this ratio was in some sense too high and was creating uh, financial instability. So I would expect that in the UK and the US this ratio may fall, but probably not yet in China. Now let us now turn to the banks, because as you could see from the previous slide, China's financial assets have been dominated by the banking system to an unusual and probably unhealthy extent. World Bank advisors typically say to countries which move into the middle income bracket that they should be seeking to diversify sources of finance away from the banking system and developing equity and bond markets. And of course, in our current crisis, we can well see the dangers of a system based heavily on banking. Bank deposits in China are 55% of total financial assets uh, versus only 29% 
in the UK and 18% in the US. And we can see that even at that level, uh, they can cause enough trouble. Now, looking, therefore, at what's going on in the Chinese banking system, because that clearly is the biggest part of the Chinese financial sector, when I began at the uh, CBRC five years ago, the big problem was non-performing loans. You couldn't discuss the financial sector in China without talking about the famous NPLs. In 2001, over 30% of all loans outstanding in the Chinese banking system were non-performing. Um, and what was particularly surprising from a Western perspective about these non-performing loans was that the realization rates were remarkably low. Um, here, a non-performing loan, well, uh, bankers aren't thrilled when they've got non-performing loans, but nonetheless, they will then go in and seize assets and they'll get some level of recovery. The real problem in the Chinese banking system was that the level of recovery on NPLs was astonishingly low. Why was that the case? Because often the state-owned enterprises, which were the source of these NPLs, didn't actually own any land of their own. So what happened was that the company uh, went bust, the bank goes in to try to get any assets. Sometimes, in fact, the assets have been taken away, but anyway, the municipality then owned the, the land. So there was really almost nothing. So the NPLs, the recovery rate was astonishingly low, I mean, below 10% uh, on average. That position has now been dramatically changed. These are figures by the CBRC, some external commentators, argue that they understate the problem a bit, but actually few now think that the position is radically different from this. So that now, in 2007, uh, only 6.7% of loans outstanding in Chinese banks are non-performing, and that is largely in the Agricultural Bank of China. The other side of this coin is that the share of banking assets in China in banks which meet global capital standards has risen very significantly. Now, of course, in this crisis, particularly in the post-crisis analysis that people are beginning, people tend to think that maybe Basel standards for capital are not tough enough, but that we'll leave aside for the moment. Ten years ago, really all the Chinese banks, except the Bank of China, which had a branch here and had it since 1929, were not able to operate overseas through branches because they did not meet the minimum Basel standards for capital. So they were only allowed to operate separately capitalized subsidiaries. <clears throat> that was a position that we took at the FSA until uh, 2003, which led to some interesting and uh, somewhat uncomfortable discussions between me and Governor Dai at the time, uh, because we simply refused to allow Chinese banks to operate branches. In other words, branches are where they branch here operates on the back of the capital of the parent rather than having separate capitalization in this jurisdiction. That is not now the problem um, and a lot of Chinese banks now meet capital asset requirements. These again are CBRC figures but on their figures in back in 2003 essentially no Chinese banks except one or two specialized merchant banks with less than 1% of deposits actually met capital asset requirements on the Basel standard, and it's now something like 80% of 
of, of all the assets in the Chinese banking system are in banks which meet Basel standards and therefore can operate internationally. And in fact, the residual is essentially still uh, the Agricultural Bank of China. Now, this is a massive turnaround and quite a tribute to the determination of the authorities to push this through. <coughs> there was a coherent reform program which began with the establishment of bad banks, in other words, asset management companies that took these non-performing assets off the balance sheets of the banks. But of course, to do that, that involved a significant uh, capital support from the government. The second was that there were huge capital injections into the banks in addition to taking these bad assets off. I mean, the Chinese actually, in the early years of the century, operated what we would now call a TARP on the Paulson model. They took a massive amount of assets off the books at prices actually above uh, what the market was telling them they were worth. And in addition, <coughs> put in capital injections by the government on a very large scale. It's quite interesting that in the commentary on what's been going on in the last week, uh, even the Financial Times, it talks about the Japanese crisis and the Swedish crisis. And in fact, in my view, what the Chinese did in the early part of this decade is actually quite like uh, what is going on now. And yet no one seems to use that as an analogy. But the Chinese got there uh, well, beyond Gordon, well before Gordon Brown, now of course known internationally as the saviour of the global capital system. <laughs> it's good to see that there are still some comedians writing for the Financial Times. Um, in addition, the um, Chinese established partnerships with overseas banks to improve the management and particularly the information technology. Uh, bank of America, uh, Citibank, HSBC in particular established small stakes in Chinese banks, but more particularly sent quite large uh, numbers of management uh, experts in to reform particularly their information systems, their management information systems. They brought in overseas directors on the main boards um, to improve corporate governance, and of course then moved to flotations in Shanghai and sometimes uh, in Hong Kong and elsewhere. And this has been a pretty successful program, as you can see, in terms of the improvement of the quality of banking assets in China. And indeed, through this period, bank assets have grown rapidly, um, as you can see from this, that uh, now Chinese banks have something like 55 uh, trillion RMB in assets, which is a lot. Um, it's about uh, four and a half trillion pounds on the current exchange rate. And so this process of cleaning up the banks uh, recapitalizing them, taking the rubbish off their balance sheets has been a pretty spectacular success so far. It's been costly from the government's point of view as the British government and the US government are finding uh, when you need to recapitalize a banking system this does cost you money. Uh, the Chinese have done it really quite successfully. And the return on equity in Chinese banks has risen quite sharply. Now, we used to look at these figures even three or four years ago and say, oh, 11.9% return on equity in a bank, you know, banks should be looking at 20. I have to tell you that most of the banks in the Western world would be absolutely thrilled if they could look forward at the moment to a 15% return on equity. Uh, so actually, the Chinese banks are now uh, dramatically more profitable than most of their overseas competitors. But 
there are, of course, still some significant problems, and this reform program is not complete. As I've mentioned, the Agricultural Bank of China has not been reformed, and that is particularly difficult, both in terms of its scale, it has about 25,000 branches, um, and in terms of its employees, it has about a million uh, employees. Uh, getting rid of these uh, employees is not easy. Uh, I had lunch with the chairman of the Agricultural Bank and who said, yes, he said, we could make this bank more efficient um, and we wouldn't lose any business at all if I could only lay off 250,000 people, um, <laughs> which is the measure of the scale. And of course, even in China, 250,000 is a large number of people and is politically extremely difficult. So the Ch Agricultural Bank is still a big problem and of course the political sensitivity of availability of funds in the agricultural sector is extremely high in China. And there are also, I think, still significant cultural problems in the Chinese system. Now here we have to be quite careful because we have seen a vivid demonstration of how, how Western banking systems can go wrong, but in our system there are typically a lot of creative tensions which are meant to create some discipline in banks. Within banks themselves, there is creative tension between lending officers and those terrible credit guys who are always telling you you can't lend. There are tensions between the credit people and the risk managers, between all of them and the internal auditors, between all of them and the external auditors, between the whole bank and its regulators, both financial regulators and competition regulators, and indeed with the rating agencies. At present, these tensions do not operate properly in China. If you look at the way the system is managed, you find the same people who pop up as a regulator one day, uh, as running a bank the next day, um, and then they're in the finance ministry, and then they're back in the People's Bank, and it, the system is managed without generating these institutional tensions. And I think that, in the long run, is quite a risk for the system. Now, of course, as I said, these tensions have not operated wholly effectively in our case recently. Some of them, indeed, have been effectively suspended. We've suspended, uh, in the US and the UK, certainly, our views about uh, competition, uh, in that we've allowed mergers which we would never have contemplated um, even a year ago. Um, but I guess those tensions will eventually be reintroduced. And competition is a particular problem in China. <clears throat> competition in the banking system has not developed as much as expected. In spite of the WTO commitment to opening the Chinese financial sector, which has technically been fulfilled, foreign banks have still found it quite difficult to make much of an impact on the Chinese market, particularly on the renminbi market. I mean, in, in overseas currency lending, uh, foreign banks are significant. But although there are 24 foreign, branch, uh, uh, foreign bank subsidiaries in China with 119 branches, and it's important to note that in China, a branch doesn't mean the same thing as a branch here or in the US. If you have a branch of a bank in the UK, that means you can put as many offices as you like. You can have as many branches in that sense of a place you walk in as you want once you've been approved. In China, you can't. Once you've been approved for a branch, that means a branch 
on Financial Street, Beijing, it does not mean you can open a branch anywhere else. If you want to open one in Shanghai, you have to go and ask for another one. So this is a technically, technical difference that, in fact, the Chinese are very restrictive um, on the opening of outlets, if you like. Um, and, of course, there have been severe restrictions on the bank's ability to do RMB business. So although the total assets look reasonably respectable, 171 billion uh, and a 45% growth rate, in fact, if you look at the market share of foreign banks, um, really they have only 2.4% uh, of assets uh, in the Chinese banking system and 5.9% of the capital. And that suggests so they're not particularly capital efficient and they've had to bring quite a lot of capital into China and they have not really been allowed to do that much business with the capital they have brought in. So reform program going well, but still a big nut to crack in the agricultural bank, still not enough institutional tensions within the system uh, to keep it working efficiently small amounts of foreign competition, which I think is not a good thing. And there is a further problem. There remain many administered controls on banks in China, which have had some perverse consequences, both for the financial system and indeed for the economy as a whole. There's a particularly interesting paper published this August by a man called Nicholas Lardy, who's a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute and at uh, Brookings, called A Note on Financial Repression in China. Repression, rather a loaded word, but it's the one he uses, so I will use it here. And his argument runs as follows, and I think it's one with which I agree. He points out that the way in which the People's Bank have administered interest rates in recent years has had a major impact on the distribution of income and wealth within China. And he's not looking at this in terms of individuals, but in terms of the main components of the economy, the household sector, the banking sector, and the government. In February 2002, the People's Bank fixed the maximum interest rate banks could pay on demand deposits, on site deposits, at 0.72%, a rate that in fact remains unchanged today. But inflation as measured by the CPI, has moved from being slightly negative in 2002 to almost 5% in 2007, and now running at a rate of about 8% in the early part of this year. So the real rate of return on demand deposits went from a positive just over 1% to a negative 7% during the period. Uh, by, and in the first quarter of this year, the real return on one-year deposits was minus 3.86% on his rather precise calculation, but roughly minus 4%. Now, this, of course, is an implicit tax on households, because households are large net depositors in the banking system. Now, you may well say, why would anyone carry on being a depositor um, if essentially uh, being a depositor in a Chinese bank um, was having your money taken away from you? Well. Chinese depositors have not been able to do what many British savers have done, which is to send their money to a safe haven in Iceland um, <laughs> in, search, in search of marginally higher returns. Uh, indeed, we now discover that a number of universities uh, have done that too. 
unfortunately, we have a very staid finance director at the LSE who hasn't even heard of Iceland. Um, <laughs> it's, it would be wrong of me uh, to name any names, uh, but Cambridge were mentioned in the Daily Mail. Now, I guess uh, <clears throat> that almost certainly is wrong, but um, there we are. Now, the consequence of this tax um, is really very uh, significant uh, indeed, because if households had received the 2002 interest rate, their income would have been, that's the, the real interest rate that they were getting in 2002, their income this year would be higher by the equivalent of just over 4% of GDP, which is quite a lot. And this implicit tax is in fact more than three times the proceeds of the tax that is imposed directly on households, which is the personal income tax. So who benefits from this large tax on households? How is the balance distributed between corporates, the banks, and the government itself? Now, companies are a significant beneficiary in that the real interest rate on loans has fallen, and most loans go to companies, not to households. Households typically are net depositors in the banking system. In 2002, corporates were paying a real rate of just over 7% for one-year money. By the first quarter of this year, the real interest rate was slightly negative. So corporate borrowers in the first quarter of this year faced an interest rate on one-year loans 8% lower in real terms than six years ago. If you work this out, it seems that corporates are benefiting by about 1% of GDP from a transfer from households, so about a quarter uh, of this tax on households is in fact going in the form of uh, an interest rate subsidy, if you like, to the corporate sector. Now you might say that banks should be also benefiting from this. That looks perfectly straightforward. If banks are restricted on the nominal interest rate uh, they can pay, this sounds great. And there are one or two bankers sitting here in the front row salivating at the prospect um, of having 55 trillion renminbi of deposits on which they are not allowed uh, to pay an interest rate. And it's certainly true that the average spread on loans in the banking system has risen during this period, contributing to the rise in bank profits which we have seen. But there is another side to this, in that what the People's Bank grants to banks in the form of cheap deposits it partially removes through its massive sterilization operations. Because to, to maintain the renminbi rate against the dollar, the government has intervened massively in the foreign currency market. Now, of course, we see the consequence of that in terms of very rapid growth in China's foreign exchange reserves, which have risen from around uh, 200, million, $200 billion um, in 2002 to about $1.8 trillion today. And to prevent this leading to massive increases in the domestic money supply with inflationary consequences, the People's Bank have increased the reserve ratios on banks from 6% to 17.5% now, which has compelled the banks to put an additional 5 trillion RMB on deposit at the central bank. And that imposes effectively a tax on banks because, of course, if you have to put reserves on deposit with the central bank, you receive typically far lower rates on those deposits than you get if you're able to lend that money to customers. So the consequence is 
that Chinese banks are not anything like as large beneficiaries of this financial repression, in Lardy's phrase, as you might think. And indeed, the main additional beneficiary is, what do you know, the government. The government, in fact, gains from the tax it imposes on the banks by its sterilization operations in pursuit of a lower exchange rate, which, of course, in turn, has an additional benefit to the exporting corporate sector. So this tax on households, which contributes to low consumer spending in China, is the consequence on this analysis of the RMB being kept lower than it would otherwise be. It also, I have to say, makes it quite difficult to assess just how well the banks are really doing. Are the large increases in profits reported by most banks the results of improvements in corporate governance, in productivity, in business procedures, in risk management, or are they simply due to the widening of spreads due to the People's Bank control of benchmark interest rates? I suspect the answer is a bit of both, but the question is actually quite difficult to answer. And according to Lardy, it means, and I quote from him, whilst the central government has long articulated the goal of transforming banks to operate on commercial principles, financial repression is currently inimical to achieving that goal. And this mechanism does appear to have distorted the Chinese economy considerably. And indeed, we have this on no lesser authority than Wen Jiabao, uh, who said just last March that China's growth is unsteady, unbalanced, uncoordinated, and unsuitable. Apart from that, it's fine. Uh, and what he was talking about, his critique, was that growth had come to depend disproportionately on increasing investment spending and a rising external surplus. Consumption as a share of GDP has fallen sharply and its contribution to growth is now unusually low, both in comparison with other countries and in comparison with China's earlier reform period. The government have often said that they want to rebalance growth and increase household consumption as a share of GDP, but they have repeatedly failed to achieve that. In fact, since 2004, the share of household consumption in GDP has continued to fall to the really quite astoundingly low level of only 35% of GDP in 2007. And one important reason for that continued decline in household consumption as a contributor to growth is that household interest income as a share of GDP is falling, even though household savings as a share of GDP have risen. And that's a consequence of this mechanism of the control of interest rates that I have described. So this financial repression, so-called, reduces the growth of household income and makes it less likely that the government will achieve the goal of balancing the sources of economic growth. In turn, that makes China more vulnerable to changes in demand elsewhere. It makes it difficult for household spending to take up the slack from falling exports. And furthermore, it makes it more difficult for China to develop an efficient capital market. This mechanism works because savers have few alternative financial assets, following the earlier analysis I gave of the high dependence of China on the banks. Now, equities are an option, but extreme price volatility in the equity markets is rather off-putting to small savers. Real assets are another alternative, and the search for more rewarding investments has been seen 
in the form of high increases in property prices. Now, if you are from the UK or the US, you have to be a bit cautious uh, about pointing the finger at people with exploding property markets. Uh, if you are from Ireland or indeed from Spain, you have to be even more cautious because they have had uh, even higher expansions. But China's property price escalation has been quite uh, dramatic recently. Um, and although they haven't quite reached the same extravagant levels as um, in London or on the uh, Costa Brava, nonetheless, there are risks, I think, of quite a dangerous bubble developing in the Chinese property market. There's also a very small bond market, and it's dominated by government paper and paper from other government-guaranteed institutions. Only 7% of the Chinese bond market is accounted for what we might call commercial borrowing. So that makes the market really quite an uninteresting one, which has developed very slowly. Before I come on to the consequences of all of this and the prospect for the financial sector, just a word briefly about the other two dimensions of the uh, financial markets uh, outside banking, the equities and uh, bonds. I've said very briefly about them, but just to look very quickly at what's been happening. The performance of the stock exchange in China has been dramatically bad um, in the last year or so. Uh, you can see the market began to decline earlier than markets elsewhere, and there's no real sign of it reaching a trough. It's lost two-thirds of its value um, over the last year. I've excluded the last couple of weeks because the movements have been so dramatic uh, and so difficult to interpret that it's hard to draw any conclusions from them. There are many reasons for this um, weakness. Uh, I apologize to any of our Chinese students who have been heavily invested in the Shanghai market during this uh, period. Actually, there can't be many, because if you have been, you probably can't afford our fees. So um, the proportion, why has this market been so bad? Well, a number of reasons. The proportion of the free float is low in many companies, which means that the market moves can be quite exaggerated. If the prospects for a company changes and only 10% of its shares are in fact on the market and in a free float, then clearly the volatility is likely to be significantly higher. There's a large overhang of government-owned shares, which people in China worry that if the price rallies, the government will sell more into the market, and we've seen some consequence of that. There are poor corporate governance standards in many cases. The protection for minority investors in Chinese companies are weak, and shareholders perceive that. Also, many brokers are undercapitalized and in poor financial condition, and there is certainly a perception of too much uh, insider dealing and relatively little prosecution of insider dealing. The same is true of the bond market. The lack of derivatives has impeded the development of that market as well. There's now, of course, great nervousness by the authorities about the development of a derivatives market in China for reasons which are now more understandable than they were in the past. Just a very brief word about uh, insurance. Insurance is still very undeveloped in China. <coughs> Foreign companies are beginning to make an impact. There was really only one Chinese uh, insurance company about 10 years ago, and so most of the development has come in the form of partnerships with foreign uh, insurance companies 
uh, like the Prudential from here or Aviva uh, or of course uh, AIG, though I guess that subsidiary will now probably be sold. Uh, foreign companies have still only 6% of the market and the most successful operator has been uh, Ping An. This ought to be a focus of more reform, but frankly I think there is not quite the same impetus to reform in the China Insurance Regulatory Commission as in the other two commissions. So what about the prospect from now? Well, obviously uh, it depends on the state of the Chinese economy and on the likely growth rate. There are signs that economic growth is now moderating. China has achieved an average growth rate of over 10% a year for almost 20 years, which has been quite an astonishing performance. But of course, many people fear that at some point that has to change. Will the financial crisis be the trigger? Well, probably not directly, but there are certain indirect mechanisms underway. And one of them, of course, is the exchange rate. The RMB uh, has been strengthening against the dollar uh, in spite of the efforts of the People's Bank to uh, hold it down over many years, though the nominal effect uh, of the strengthening has been smaller. That undoubtedly has an impact on exporters. It probably does not have so much impact on the banking sector, which does not in fact have large unhedged foreign currency exposures. There have been a lot of sort of scare stories that one of the reasons for the Chinese holding down the exchanges has been to protect their banking system, but I don't actually believe that. I don't believe that the Chinese banks are especially vulnerable because of unhedged exposures to an, a rising exchange rate. And the, P, the CBRC has been very tough uh, on their foreign currency exposures. The impact of these trends can be seen in the form of declining uh, external trade volumes. Well, uh, the growth rates um, have decelerated, let's put it that way at least. This trend is not very marked yet, but does look fairly clear in terms of direction. And since manufacturing is over 50% of Chinese GDP as opposed to 12% here, and given the still depressed nature of Chinese internal consumption, export markets are particularly sensitive. Some of you will have read that toy manufacturers in China are particularly in trouble. They are very heavily exposed to export markets and it turns out that the domestic market in China for Bob the Builder models or for Barbie and Ken is quite small, which I think is quite a tribute to the tastes of Chinese children. <laughs> it's hard to think other than that the propensity of the US and the UK and the rest of the EU to import from China will decline in the next year. It's hard to imagine uh, that anything else could happen. Another somewhat ominous trend is the growth in uh, inflation. Some would say that this is likely to tail off as growth slows down elsewhere and commodity and oil, price, uh, oil prices falter, and I think that is true. But China does face a sharp version of the dilemma we have here, whereby demand is weakening significantly but reported inflation remains uncomfortably high. And there are signs now that investment is slowing down as well. And that is more serious because investment has been the great motor of the Chinese economy. And not surprisingly, given what I've said about low and even negative real interest rates for companies. 
Can an economy survive with this investment rate uh, indefinitely? I don't know. If one, anyone wants to ask that question, I will ask Professor Kwa to answer it. Um, but it seems pretty unlikely when overseas demand is slackened. So all that brings us to the question of what next for the financial sector in China and for the overall economy. There is, of course, an optimistic view presented by the government. Uh, on Sunday, Wen Jiabao said, our economic fundamentals haven't changed and the economy is moving in the direction we expected. The strength of our financial institutions has generally increased and their ability to make money and withstand risk has risen. Market liquidity is ample and the financial system is stable and safe. This will help us withstand any negative external impact. We are full of confidence in the development of the economy and in the stability of the financial system. Now, I think these words were actually a translation from a speech made by Gordon Brown about the British economy <laughs> um, about six months ago. Now, we can excuse uh, politicians for saying this kind of thing. Uh, relatively few politicians ever come out and say that they fear that the economy is riding for a fall and that something very nasty is about to happen. Um, because that is likely to be a self-fulfilling uh, prophecy. But on the other hand, there are those who foresee trouble ahead. One quote from an unnamed senior Chinese official on Reuters the other day was, China's financial crisis will kick off between 2009 and 2010 and will be triggered by a turning point in renminbi appreciation. By that time, international capital will flow out instead of coming in and the yuan will face depreciation pressure. China will face a liquidity shortage and financial crisis will therefore follow. I think that's also rather extreme and I don't expect actually uh, downward pressure on the RMB. But the point about capital flowing into China to fund this investment boom is probably quite a significant one. Indeed, those of you who read Financial Times today will have seen the headline, flow of capital to China is slowing and the reserves rose by only $21 billion in September, uh, which was below the trade surplus in uh, September. Not exactly a crisis, but an interesting change in trend. What is my view? Well, I guess I'm influenced by my view of the overall economic prospect. I have been a bear throughout this crisis and indeed uh, forecast a recession here and in the US 12 months ago, and I've seen nothing to change my mind. The dynamic of the credit crunch is now familiar to you all, so how will it play out in relation to Chinese banks? Well, of course, there are two points I've made uh, already, that it looks like the export slowdown is very likely, uh, that there will be a reduction in foreign capital imports, on the other hand, the direct impact on Chinese banks of the financial crisis is relatively modest. They have not made the egregious errors made by banks here. They are facing small exposures to uh, subprime markets, but there is a potential domestic weakening um, because of signs of asset price appreciation uh, in China after a long period of rising house prices. So I think in terms of the financial crisis as we've got it, I would see 
China as getting only a weak form of our banking disease. But I think it's unlikely that they will manage to escape with nothing at all. So the big question about the future direction of financial reform, the big questions, are what will happen next. Is China's path, which has essentially been to follow the US and the UK with more competition, with liberalization, with less direct control, with the growth of some derivatives markets, is that the one to follow? At a meeting with Vice Premier Wang Qishang this summer, which I attended, he asked politely whether he should continue to take his Wall Street teacher's lessons seriously. He might just as well have said Lombard Street as Wall Street. It's a good question and one to which no one has a good answer. I suspect that some elements of the financial system in New York and London are worth rescuing from the wreckage, but that China would now be wise to pause for a moment of reflection before continuing on with its reform program as before. There is no doubt, and there's no point in hiding it, that the Anglo-American model has taken something of a hit. How severe that hit is, we can't yet say. But it certainly causes those of us who've been honored to be asked to advise the Chinese some cause for thought. Should they now continue to sell off more of their banking system? Should they continue to develop derivatives markets to stimulate the bond market? I'm not quite so sure, particularly at a time when Western governments are having to intervene to buy banks um, and where derivatives markets are being reduced significantly in scale. And certainly, I think I would be cautious about in opening derivatives markets until I was sure that my banks were better able to manage risk and understand the dynamics of that risk. Uh, and since it's clear that some investment banks couldn't do that, uh, in London and New York, uh, it's not, uh, there's no particular reason to think that Chinese banks who have not been in those markets before will be better able to do so. So one final question. Is this the opportunity for China to take over the world through its sovereign wealth fund or its banks? We've already seen some interesting signs of a transfer of wealth. CIC owns 10% of Morgan Stanley, for example. But in fact, at present, uh, CIC is relatively small by the standards um, of the sovereign wealth funds. It could clearly grow more rapidly if the Chinese want it. I think we will see some transfer of economic power. We've already seen that Chinese banks are now very large. Three Chinese banks are in the world's top ten by market capitalization, though of course some of that is as a result of the falls in the market values of Western banks rather than a rise in the Chinese. What will they do with their economic strength? That's not an easily answerable question at this point. They may well make further acquisitions. There are some assets available at very attractive prices in Iceland and indeed in Scotland. Um, but I guess my advice to them would be to proceed with some caution uh, before they acquire those. They will have more difficulty making acquisitions in the US, where I expect that congressional opposition to majority state-owned Chinese banks acquiring US banks will remain very strong. So this is a very interesting moment in the reform of the Chinese financial sector. I think that the authorities in China have been on a clear path 
for the last six or seven years. There have been some ups and downs, but they have had a clear endpoint in mind in terms of the development of equity markets and bond markets and the privatization, in a certain sense, of their banking system and the opening of financial markets to competition. I suspect, however, now they do need something of a new direction because the end point is now not quite so clear given the crisis in the Western financial system. It will be fascinating to see how the Chinese redefine the objective of their financial reform program. See you here same time next year and we'll talk further about it. Thank you. specific about um, how you saw the neg negative effect of uh, asset price, uh, the falling asset prices playing out. In particular, is that going to be household sector, that prop people, property that households own is becoming, uh, is it falling in, in value, or is this something that will be happening through the corporate sector and falling investment? Uh, well, I think there would be uh, two slightly different uh, effects. Um, but I think the one that I would be most uh, anxious about is house price inflation in the coastal cities. And I think it's got to, you've got to be clear, you're not talking about the whole of the Chinese economy here. You're talking about overheating in certain residential property markets um, in, in the main coastal cities. Um, on the whole, uh, I think that the impact of that will not be huge on the financial sector, unless, of course, there's a complete meltdown. 
because Chinese banks have been fairly cautious in terms of their loan-to-value rates. Uh, there aren't great figures on that, but the CBRC is quite restrictive with Chinese banks in terms of the loan-to-value rates that they can offer. And of course, uh, because the household sector is so uh, deposit-rich, typically it's not a great problem for people to produce a 10, 20, 25% deposit. Um, so uh, I suspect that the problem uh, of falling house prices in the coastal cities uh, will probably uh, result in yet more household saving um, as people see the equity in their houses fall. But there will certainly be some uh, losses in the banking sector. If you have that kind of thing happen, there are certainly, just like elsewhere, there will be people who leave their property. I think the more concerning area from the bank's point of view um, is in the commercial property market, where you know, if you go to Shanghai or Beijing, you can't help just wondering who's going to fit in all those places, really. I mean, it, uh, you know, there is a massive amount of commercial property being built in those places. And I just think that there may well be uh, some overstretched uh, property companies but, and who would be very exposed even from a, what we would regard as a relatively modest slowing down of the economy. So if growth slows from last year about 11.5%, if it were to slow to 8 I think there'll be some problems in the commercial property market, and that will hit the banks. So those would be the two mechanisms I would see. Well, I take it that your reference to wall, rebuilding the Wall Street is not a reference to the Great Wall of China. <laughs> And so let, let me talk about a sector of the Chinese banking system, which is still remains to be reformed. Could you say something about the Agriculture Bank of China and Agriculture Credit Corp, which still remains a large unfinished task, but concerns a very large part of the Chinese population? Yeah. Um, the provision of finance in the rural areas is undoubtedly an issue of great concern to the Chinese authorities because Agricultural Bank of China is uh, structurally unprofitable. Uh, it's quite a costly mechanism for delivering credit, uh, particularly small-scale credit in rural areas. And I think what the Chinese authorities uh, would like to do is to use the rural credit cooperative movement uh, to develop really low-level microfinance in the in uh, in rural communities. Uh, at the moment, the rural credit cooperatives, uh, like credit union movements and credit cooperatives, really everywhere, are very mixed in terms of quality and, and uh, in terms of their efficiency. And the kind of ideas that they are looking at, I think, which I think are quite promising, is whether you can establish something rather like the Japanese model of rural finance, or indeed rather like the US credit union model, whereby there's a kind of credit cooperative central bank, if you like, which oversees the system, and which acts as a kind of 
capital backer, but also in some sense a kind of regulator and quality controller. I mean, that's how credit unions operate in the, in the US. There is a central credit union insurance corporation based in Madison, Wisconsin, which actually backs all those funny credit unions you see around the US. And there's similarly a kind of central bank of credit cooperatives in Japan. And that, I think, is where they see the most promising route to creating a really uh, low-level and cheaper version of rural credit, leaving probably the agricultural bank, um, which is really structured more like a big commercial bank, um, to cope with the larger sort of projects in agricultural development rather than microfinance. So I would see that's being a sort of twin-track approach for revitalizing the rural credit cooperative movement um, and giving agricultural bank uh, more, being, that being more at the top end of large-scale rural development uh, and allowing that to trim down its workforce to some extent, recapitalizing it, taking its bad assets off, doing something of the job that they did on the others to the agricultural bank. But I think they don't want to do that unless they can show that they've got a working model of an alternative source of financing for rural development. Could I have the microphone down here, please? All the way down here. I'm Stephen Grunenberg from the University of Westminster. And what I want to ask is almost linked to what you've just been saying, coincidentally, because um, I wonder if the precedent for the Brown package that you described in the early uh, 2000s um, was to some extent responsible for the inflation that, that followed. To what extent then is the Brown package uh, also inflationary by injecting money into the banking system through buying shares and buying assets? In the bank. Um, <clears throat> well, I suppose there's a, there's a Chinese answer to that and there's a British um, answer to that. I, I'm not sure that I would see the Chinese bank recapitalization as directly linked to Chinese uh, inflation. I, I, I would see, I haven't, I haven't thought about it, it's an interesting uh, question, but I think that most of the analyses I've seen of Chinese inflation um, have tended to give a higher weight, well, first of all, to commodity price rises everywhere, uh, which the Chinese can't be insulated from, um, but also from uh, the fact that although we think about and talk airily about the unlimited supply of cheap labor in China, in practice it isn't quite like that, and that once you have got people who are trained, given particularly the more sophisticated uh, Chinese manufacturing, you know, then um, resisting wage pressures by saying we'll just get another 100,000 people from somewhere else is just not a realistic option. So wages have risen, and uh, although you know, unionization doesn't operate in quite the way we think of it, that you know, organized labor has had some bargaining power in China. And uh, so I think those are the factors that I would see lying behind Chinese inflation rather than the um, recapitalization of the banking sector. Um, as for the impact in the UK, that takes us in a slightly different direction. I guess what I'm nervous about, and the government doesn't seem to have quite worked out what they really want here, but the, the aspects of the recapitalization package that makes me rather anxious 
uh, is what the government have said about the need for the banks to continue to lend at the same rate as they have been lending. Uh, and that, if you were doing, if you really meant that, uh, in an environment of you know, weakening uh, demand and poor uh, credit quality, you know, then you could end up with a serious problem, exactly as you said. And just in the last 24 hours, it looks as if a degree of sophistication of this message has been emerging from the government. Um, we've been talking about actually uh, credit being made available or, or the uh, marketed and etc. on the same terms as before, but not that the actual volume would be required. So I, I think that uh, may well cope with the problem you alluded to. <coughs> down in, down over here, because the, the woman with the long hair is pretty. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, um, uh, I'm from uh, Publication Call, Futures and Options Intelligence. Um, well, I've just got a question, sorry? Um, sorry, I've just got a question for you um, regarding um, derivatives exchanges. Um, do you think that um, exchanges may open up to foreign investors or do you think that um, that's not going to be possible given what's happened recently? Do you think that that may happen in the future or do you think it's not something we can foresee at the moment? Sorry, you, the, you mean the ownership of exchanges? Um, I mean members uh, listed on exchanges now have to be based in China. I was wondering if in the future you think that um, they will allow uh, members um, who are based in other countries. Hmm. Futures and options intelligence. That sounds like a, a sort of new oxymoron, doesn't it? Um, the, um, um, well, I think that um, if you ask that question of the CSRC today, I think the answer would be uh, a sort of Chinese version of in due course. Um, you know, they would not say no to that, uh, and indeed. I think that part of the sort of grand plan has been, yes, in due course, they recognise that if you, particularly if you want Shanghai to be an international financial centre, uh, that in due course you would need to open up your exchanges to uh, foreign participants. Um, I, wouldn't ex I wouldn't be holding your breath uh, for that to happen uh, in the very near future. Uh, and indeed, I think what I was saying at the end was I suspect now there will be some rethinking about just what kind of international financial center you actually want to create in, in China. Uh, so I would say that the timing of that occurring uh, has now receded. There are some questions up in front of me. Yeah, the gentleman in the white shirt. Uh, Professor Davis, I would appreciate your view on the asset management business in China. As we saw last year, you see the beginning of uh, the RMB-denominated private equity funds, such as Hopu Fund, by Fang Donglei of Goldman Sachs, former chairman. And then very recently, you saw the opening of the short selling in the Chinese markets. It would be really interesting to hear your view on how you think the private equity funds, hedge funds, and mutual funds will fit in the Chinese financial reform in the future. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a tough one. I mean, I think in some ways the, um, the answer is rather similar to the answer I gave before. Uh, that uh, until recently, I think that the Chinese have thought that uh, a private equity industry would 
uh, gradually develop in China. They have actually been open to uh, foreign private equity businesses coming into China. Um, they have not been uh, particularly open to um, hedge funds in China. Uh, typically, the Asian hedge funds have set up in Singapore and operate out of Singapore and not so far onshore uh, in China. They've been nervous about allowing that to happen. There's quite an interesting debate uh, in China at the moment about the development of private equity, of domestic private equity. I mean, domestic private equity in China is, is not actually banned. I mean, you know, people are perfectly able to, to take uh, private investments and companies don't have to be quoted. So in that sense, it's not uh, forbidden. The question is um, the realization options that you would have and whether um, at the moment it would be possible to find an exit um, through floating on an exchange. So frankly, at the moment, I think, what is constraining the developments of private equity in China is not so much regulatory restrictions. It's just the perception that while the Chinese stock exchanges remain so weak and so vulnerable uh, that people can't easily see a very attractive exit route. Um, and that's what concerns private, invest private equity investors the most. Uh, so I don't think that you will see a massive development of the private equity market in China um, until you see some improvement in the sort of tone and the quality of the publicly quoted exchanges. Okay, now I belong in this part of the room, so we will get a microphone down here. I'm, I'm not trying to make the stewards even fitter physically by moving them around. And I just want a good distribution of questions from all over. So, somebody over here? Um, the gentleman in red. <laughs> I think they're a team. <laughs> okay, good evening, sir. Uh, uh, Mr. Davis, uh, thanks for. Uh, good evening, sir. Good evening, everyone here. And uh, thanks for uh, you give, give us this wonderful talk. And uh, I'd like to know during this financial crisis, uh, who are so happy to see it? And uh, what is the currently good news for everyone? Because I'm working in Kandu Wolf, I mean, for CDM, you know, every morning I see everybody, I mean, so depressed. Actually, I want to see people, I mean, quite positive. Because, you know, when people see uh, bad news, if they have a positive mind, they see bad news in a positive way. So, <laughs> now I'd like to know what is. Uh, who are the people so happy to see uh, this moment, I mean, during this financial crisis? Who are so happy to see it? Thank you very much. You guys should be very happy to die. Thanks for the talk. Thank you. <laughs> so, uh, traditionally, one set of uh, institutions who have benefited from financial crisis are universities. Um, <laughs> Because uh, if people um, can't get a well-paid job in the financial sector, they say, what the hell, I'm going to get another degree. <laughs> and maybe when I've done that, there'll be, you know, the crisis will have uh, removed. So uh, amazingly, people are falling over themselves to be taught by daddy. I know that seems astonishing, but it really, it really is true. 
but somewhat more seriously, I mean, I, it's, it, it has been an absolutely terrifying time for anybody with any connection with financial markets, and frankly, that means kind of everybody, because uh, everybody's been sitting on some kind of financial asset, or almost everybody, um, and nervous about it. And I, I think, uh, but I wouldn't put it much higher than that, that what the government have now done, or, uh, this government and the US government, um, ought to provide the basis for more confidence in the markets. And we've seen some early signs of that happening in the form of uh, reducing uh, spreads on uh, credit insurance effectively, uh, which is probably the best indicator of, uh, of this crisis. And um, one can just hope that that happens, but I think the, the best analogy that I can think of is that, you know, that in central banks, and having been a central banker for a while, you know, there is a kind of doctrine about what you do with a crisis of confidence and a crisis of liquidity, which is that you, know, you just pump in liquidity without limit, and eventually the problem goes away. And um, what's happened recently is that the central banks kept doing that, and it didn't make any difference. And it's a bit like the doctor who, you go to your general practitioner and he knows what to do, you've got a sore throat, and you give him, you punch you full of antibiotics so it goes away. And it's just not gone away. And then they don't know what to do. And the central banks have, you know, I think they would acknowledge themselves, been somewhat frozen because the normal method, you know, from budget onwards, it tells you what to do about financial crisis and it hasn't worked. So they've been forced to do more and more things. It's not clear to me what more the authorities can do in London and New York than take stakes in banks, which shows that they have skin in the game and you know, effectively the government will lose money if this bank goes down in a serious way, um, and that they've been prepared to put their own name behind it, and secondly to guarantee uh, interbank lending, which effectively they have now done, and guarantee deposits. Now I'm not sure what else you can do really, um, so you know, we just have to hope that this works and that uh, confidence gradually returns to the market. I think the difficulty is that there are you know, clearly two things going on. There's, it's obviously related, but I think it's helpful to distinguish between the financial market crisis and the confidence issues in it and the sliding economy. You know? And so some of what's going on in the stock market um, has been related to the former, with a major crisis of confidence in the banks being sold off to a massive extent. But some of what's going on has simply been you know, what you might call a common or garden recession, you know, where people are saying companies are going to be less profitable, dividends are going to be lower, profits are going to be lower, and therefore you know, we sell off equities. And that is, well, it's not, it's not fun, but it's expected in this kind of slowing economy. And so the, the, the two somehow come together. So I suspect that what I hope will now happen is that this former effect of some crumbling confidence financial institutions has got a floor put, in, put under it. But I suspect we may still see falling equity prices, just because I think the economy will now go into quite a serious downturn. But, and that's a kind of normal consequence, and it wouldn't be surprising to see that. But I, you know, I have every sympathy with you, and I think maybe in retrospect, um, it was a mistake to build uh, Canary Wharf near too much water. <coughs> which, um, but it's not very deep, actually. If you throw yourself in, you probably will not sink. Yeah, there was a question up in front here. Yeah. 
I wonder what you think of the role of um, financial reporting in um, the development of China's financial markets. Now, based on many personal anecdotal experience, and certainly not to blow the trumpet of the Western media, I find that the discourse and disclosure of finance and economics in China to be extremely bad. And I wonder if you take the view that this may result in an even more disproportionate transfer of wealth from those who know and are educated in financial matters. Mm. Yeah, that's a very interesting um, question. And um, I think there probably is a, uh, <coughs> a difference between uh, the, you know, what the authorities would like to happen and what is actually happening here. And then you may have seen a rather fascinating and I think rather encouraging letter in today's Financial Times from uh, somebody, a member of the staff of the CBRC, actually rather splendidly criticising the head of a Cambridge college, um, John Eatwell, who uh, argued essentially against mark-to-market and fair value accounting, you know, arguing that uh, somehow you know, that's been part of the crisis, not a view I uh, particularly share, and arguing that actually it would be a huge mistake to pull back from uh, the kinds of mark-to-market and fair value disclosures, which is kind of, I, you know, a rather interesting sort of reversal, you know, the Chinese telling us that actually um, we should be improving our disclosure or not damaging our disclosure. So, and I think that is, I think it is the case that at the level of the major regulators in China, that they are strongly uh, committed to following um, Western standards of disclosure. And certainly one of the absolute preconditions of any flotation in the Chinese financial sector uh, has been that they had to have accounts prepared and audited by a Western firm. I mean, that was interesting that they absolutely required that, you know, that, a, that a, an affiliate of a Western accounting firm had to audit their accounts before they were even floated on the Shanghai Exchange rather than um, not just the Hong Kong, where of course it would have been required anyway, but even to float in Shanghai, the regulators insisted on that. So I think the financial regulators have quite a strong commitment uh, to disclosure, but there are many non-financial corporates l listed on the Shanghai and Shenzhen exchanges where I think you're probably right that the standards of disclosure are not good enough, where certainly they don't have anything that really compares with our continuous disclosure obligation here or with US-style quarterly reporting, and so that uh, minority shareholders you know, are at the end of the queue when it um, comes to understanding a change in the profitability of the company. Uh, and certainly that was part of my diagnosis as to why the uh, stock market had been so, uh, such a, an uninteresting place to be invested. So I think there is a lot of work to be done on um, disclosure on, uh, in, in China. The only thing I would say is that the, the big uh, international accounting firms are expanding extremely rapidly there, so there must be a significant appetite for their services, and I think their reputations are so much on the line in China that I think they do. You know, I think if, if it's one of the overseas firms who audits you, I think that's probably that information is as good as they can get. So I think it's improving, but I, I certainly don't disagree with your hypothesis that it has been a significant problem. A question from the middle back there. Way back there. Way in the back seat. 
uh, I'm a candidate of LSC. And, <laughs> and as you said before, uh, you think that Chinese reform is quite successful to now. And my question is, uh, do you think it's mainly because of the government control or the market itself? And in the future, how do you think the market will work under the government control? Well, um, I'm not sure that uh, it has just been for successful for that reason. Uh, I mean, I think actually the biggest uh, driver for the reform program, particularly in the banking system, which I've described, and I think it's actually the reason why banking reform has been more successful than the other sort, is because there is a, there are teeth in the international capital standards. I mean, if you compare, for example, banking regulation globally and securities regulation globally, there are standards of disclosure and transparency in securities markets, okay? And in theory, they are met in Shanghai and Shenzhen just as they are in London and New York. But in fact, there's no really effective enforcement of those standards, okay? Because they are applied to a domestic market. And if you want to go and float in China, fine, and you take the standards you find. But the Shanghai market doesn't operate in London. Okay? In banking, it's different. And the Chinese found themselves in 2000 with a very rapidly growing economy, a financial sector that was deepening fast, huge banks, but actually no outlet for those banks overseas because regulators like me and the New York Fed said you can't come in because you haven't got capital that meets the international standards. And I know personally, to my personal cost, um, the Chinese did not like this one bit, but actually the, the markets in, in London and New York and Frankfurt and Paris held a line quite look, You cannot operate overseas unless you meet the international standards for capital. We're not having a huge Chinese bank coming here with no capital backing. And so that was, I think, really the stimulus because China was not prepared to be in a position where all its external intermediation was carried out by somebody else's backs. You know, that was something the Chinese was just not prepared to tolerate. I mean, perfectly well understood. It would be sort of humiliating, really, if, if a Chinese economy of this scale Nonetheless, when it came to operating in external markets, you know, couldn't, couldn't do so. So I think it was that as much as anything else. And now, of course, the government then just said, it's going to happen. You know, and they put in charge of the CBRC a very determined man in Yu Ming Kang, but it, who has had consistent political support. You know, it, it, there's been a determined view that this will happen. They've kept the guy there. He's got high international credibility, and he's just insisted on it. And it's happened. So I think that's you know, what really why the reform program has been successful in the banks. Okay. Last question over here. Schlags cinema action. You spoke of the beneficiaries of financial repression on one side. Um, um, what results this had in, in China. 
And on the other side, you spoke about the institutional tension, uh, which uh, needs um, intensification, so to speak, in China. Um, would there be any uh, comparative analysis, actually, with regions in the West? Say, for instance, uh, uh, financial repression in the uh, United States or in the UK on the one side, or on the continent, uh, in the uh, European Union. And on the other side, institutional tension. It would be, to my mind, perhaps quite interesting to make an, a, com a comparative analysis which goes beyond the models which emanate, say, from Hudson, uh, BBC uh, kind of uh, Stelzer, or from McKinsey, uh, uh, Chicago, Princeton, uh, Bernanke, and now, to my surprise, uh, from the LSE as well. Uh, is there any chance uh, of, a, a, a compar uh, of a comparative analysis which perhaps could be more useful to those folks in China which are now facing exactly the question of how to shape their future? Hmm. Well, I can't think of a comparative analysis of the sort you suggest in relation to interest rates because we uh, I can't think that there have been any Western countries who've had administered interest rates quite in the same way. You know, there, there might be a degree of analogy with the German banking system where the uh, continued existence of the uh, the Sparkassen uh, and the uh, Landesbanken um, have been benefiting from a degree of state uh, support which has uh, created a, a complex situation for the commercial banks in, in Germany and has weakened them considerably. So I think that there's a, there's a kind of an interesting uh, analogy there, but, but I don't think it works quite in the same way. It hasn't actually been through administered interest rates. As for the uh, institutional tensions that I described, um, I think that there is going to be a need for a different kind of model there. And I think you're right. I mean, I think that a number of elements of the institutional tension model, which I articulated, I mean, I, I, I've spoken about this at greater length elsewhere, but I, because I just referred to it rather briefly here, uh, have been exposed. You know, that it's quite clear that the, the tension, supposed tension between the rating agencies and the people they rate hasn't worked in the way people thought it was going to work. That's been too cosy, and indeed that is gradually being reworked. Uh, and also, especially related to uh, your reference to the interchangeability of staff oh, yeah. in Chinese yes. institutions, which of course here is the same story. Well, there I think what the Chinese authorities understand in, a, in an intellectual way, but find quite difficult to create, um, is institutional loyalty, which itself has quite a high value. Uh, I mean, it's hard to describe why, but you know, people do get you know, frightfully committed to being at Marcus as opposed to at Royal Bank of Scotland. I mean, objectively, you might say, what does this mean? But people do, and they care about their institutions, and they identify with them, and they work hard, and they try to make the right decisions for them. And I think China does have a problem in creating that because still many people think that they are, as it were, resources that can be deployed by the state and moved around the system. And I think that the failure so far to create these kind of institutional loyalties is a long-term weakness in the Chinese system. 
Okay, I'm afraid that time is up, and just as we saw the workings of financial repression in China, I'm going to have to impose intellectual repression in this lecture theater and call this to a halt. Before everybody goes, Howard did assign me uh, one of the Man Booker Prize books to read, not this year, but last year. And I have to report that I did read that. It was a book about martial arts. I did not change the martial arts that I practiced, but it did change some of my economic views on the world. <laughs> I think that there has been quite a lot of pessimistic talk about the, the possible growth future of China. One thing that we haven't actually discussed is that China's trade patterns have moved very much away from trade with the West. China now trades double the amount that it does with either the US or the EU with the rest of East Asia. Japan now, from when it used to trade 30% with the United States 20 years ago, now trades far more with China than it does with the United States. Similarly, Korea, the largest three economies in East Asia have moved into a position where they trade far more with each other and with quite different financial and economic prospects looking ahead. So if there is some optimism on the horizon as far as growth out there is concerned, we might want to think about disentangling that from the financial situation that we are here. Nonetheless, someone pointed out to me yesterday that pessimists like bears in financial markets like Howard, it is pessimists that are usually right. But it is the optimists who usually have much more fun. <laughs> so on that note, I would like to call this evening to an end. Howard will again will give another lecture that I'm sure you will all want to attend in just a few weeks on central banking and the credit crunch. That will be Thursday, the 30th of October, 6.30 in the evening, right here in this same theater. It remains for us only to thank Howard and good evening to all.